The date is the 27th of April, 2021, and our guests today are Ranjan Seagal and Molly Cook. Molly and Ranjan are both co-researchers on a recent paper published by Professor Bruce Saucer-Dote of Dartmouth's Economics Department. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get started, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear more about your individual backgrounds, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Molly, if you'd care to begin. Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Molly Cook. I am currently a junior, or I guess rising senior, at Brown in Providence. Um, I'm from Hanover. Originally, I'm actually in Hanover right now. So um, my attachment to this project really came from sort of not knowing what I was going to do last summer, right when the pandemic hit, um, and knowing that Bruce was working on this research and asking to get involved. So um, I started working on it sort of last spring and into the summer. Um, and I've really enjoyed working on it. And I guess just a bit more of my personal background, I'm studying um, applied math and econ at Brown. Wonderful. And Ranjan, if you'd like to uh, follow Molly up. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having us today. Um, I'm Ranjan. I'm studying economics. Um, I'm 22. I've been working with Professor Sasserdote since, I guess, like late 2019, I guess it was. Um, we've been doing a number of different things like this paper, as well as some interesting stuff on like changes to middle-class wealth, as well as, uh, stock trading in the Senate. Um, I guess in terms of how this kind of started is around, around last year at this time, actually, once we finished the draft of the stock paper, we were like, Ooh, COVID's going on. We should do, how can we make a positive kind of impact in the research kind of lexicon? And what we ended up doing is starting this uh, project on uh, negativity in media. And so it's been a fun kind of journey. Awesome. Well, thank you both for giving your um, backgrounds. I'm sure that provides some good context for our listeners. Um, so my first question, kind of playful, but also uh, kind of serious. How do you feel having your research referenced by Bill Maher on his, you know, huge HBO program? I mean, I, if that were my research, I'd be pretty psyched about that. Sorry for the leading question. Well, it's not as cool as getting retweeted by Marco Rubio. I will say <laughs> that that happened uh, late last year. No, it's actually really cool how uh, I think a lot of different people across the political spectrum have really kind of read the paper and it's kind of resonated with them. So that's definitely kind of interesting. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's obviously we had no idea that this would touch so many people in the way that it has or would have such a wide reach. And I feel like since the working paper came out at the end of November, we've been able to see many different places pick it up. And so, you know, my personal most exciting one was when it showed up in the New York Times morning newsletter at the end of March. That was just really, really cool because it's something that I read every day. So it was pretty exciting to see our names put in there. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Well, to dive into the content of the paper, I'm just going to um, read a quote uh, that I took to be uh, kind of representative of the thesis of the piece and feel free to add or, or correct um, once I'm done. So, and I quote, 91% uh, of stories by U.S. major media outlets are negative in tone versus 54% for non-U.S. major sources and 65% for scientific journals, uh, ellipses. Negativity of the U.S. major media is notable even in areas with positive scientific developments, including school reopenings and vaccine trials, close quote. Um, would that seem to be the major thrust of your NBER paper, or is there something I missed? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a salient quote from the piece. I mean, to me, like, 
our overwhelming point is that the most well-read or the U.S. major media are outliers in their choice to use negativity, even in covering topics that we've seen really positive developments in, you know, of course, vaccine development. And also even when we show in the paper that even in times when um, like new cases are declining, that the ne- level of negativity across the most well-read U.S. media remains pretty constant. So it seems like, you know, the actual situation on the ground does not seem to be driving negativity. And so start, we're starting to think about other, you know, potential motivators or reasons behind this persistent negativity. Yeah, and actually that's a great transition into my next question, um, which is predicated off of the following quote, uh, as are all of my questions. Um, you guys note that increasing COVID-19 cases outnumber stories of decreasing cases by a factor of five and a half even during periods when new cases are declining. And I was wondering if you guys think that this is reflective of a general negativity bias among consumers of media, or perhaps um, more so among consumers, uh, American consumers of American major media outlets, and therefore uh, perversely a rational response to a bad incentive for negative news? Or what do you think are the incentives at play here? Well, so in some ways, I think that that's right, that there is kind of like um, a perverse incentive in the sense that um, a lot of the most read pieces, I think Molly was mentioning this, that when we do an analysis of, um, we separate pieces into what was on like the New York Times most read list or the Hill's most read list and such uh, are actually even more negative than all of the other stuff that we are doing. Um, and so I think to some extent that is true. I think as well, though, there is some like heterogeneity, heterogeneity even in the most read stuff. Like the Hill, for example, is a lot. Uh, it, I don't know. Maybe I should be careful with saying a lot, but the Hill is less negative than the New York Times. So I think that um, there definitely could be like more comprehensiveness things done there. Well, I, I, yeah, I was just going to add, I think I completely agree with what Ranjan said. And I think there is a way to read our paper and take from it, you know, in some sense, if this negative bias exists among consumers, maybe places like the New York Times are just the best at capturing it. Um, And I, I, you know, can recall times that Professor Sasserdote, we like talked about ideas together of, um, you know, maybe these most well-read places are just really doing a great job, their businesses, and they're doing a great job playing to this uh, desire among consumers. I think we, we also show that even outside of COVID-specific articles, there is this negativity bias. And so, you know, perhaps this trend is, exists outside of like COVID news. Well, that's true. But I think just it's really important to mention, I think that the COVID stuff was more negative than the other stuff. Yeah. And, and even within the uh, COVID-specific news stories, you guys note that stories discussing President, uh, former President Trump and hydroxychloroquine Uh, are more numerous than all stories combined that cover companies and individual researchers working on COVID-19 vaccines. Now, uh, sorry, uh, close quote. Um, I think that that quote is referring to uh, the time period uh, from March of 2020 to July of 2020. Could you guys just clarify that for our listeners? January 1st to July 31st, 2020. All right. Yeah, just because uh, it may not be true given all of the recent developments and rollout of, of COVID vaccines. So I don't want to p- phrase that in a, in a misleading way. But still, um, to what extent do you think that Donald Trump and, and him presiding over the COVID-19 pandemic instigated 
um, this kind of hyper negative American major media response. If you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think that um, in recent times, especially, it's kind of been shown that um, the media really was kind of antagonistic. The media and Donald Trump, I think, kind of had like an antagonistic uh, sorts of relationship. And so I don't think that it's um, unfair to say that the media didn't really like him and that they were kind of trying to um, get him out in some ways, like some of the recent like uh, recordings that have come out and such. Um, but I think that, uh, so yeah, I think that's definitely an aspect though. I think I also should mention that, uh, in our methodology, we do not find differences in like, uh, the political leanings of the audiences. Um, but I think that like within like conservative to liberal, we're basically looking at, uh, very many different like liberal sources. And then we have Fox news as a representative of kind of conservative as well. So there's like, I guess it's kind of like a complicated kind of picture, as you'd expect. Another sort of interesting thing, too, now that we've brought up like partisanship, is that we find in the paper, like Rancho just said, that the C- like CNN and Fox News are somewhat equally negative in the ways that we're measuring negativity, but that negativity is clearly going to come from different places. So in the time period that we're looking at from January 1st to July 31st, 2020, you know, CNN is really upset at, you know, lifting up mask mandates, whereas Fox is really upset that, oh, that we have these in the first place in some states and look how poorly Democratic governors are doing. So that was a really interesting finding when we were running these tests and seeing that there was no like statistically significant difference between news sources that we think of on like vastly different spectrums. And I guess just one other thing I wanted to say now that you've made me think about the thrust of this data is really coming from last year is that when we were doing this research initially, like we had no idea what was going to happen with vaccines. We were, you know, sitting there in April or May of 2020, and it was, you know, obviously we've come so far since then, but there was this big mismatch between what kind of public perception was among like what you were seeing in the New York Times about vaccines in May of 2020 and the progress that was reported in the British media like we talk about at the beginning of the paper. So I think there's something about like thinking about that we how we did this mid-2020. You know, certainly we did not have the foresight of being at the end of 2020 even, much less 2021. Yeah, and that's uh, important to note, Molly, absolutely. And to go back to your former statement, about overall negativity not differing based on the partisanship of the media outlet. Although um, where that negativity may be coming from varies drastically. That was that segues in like beautifully into one of my questions, um, which is that like how, given that, okay, there, there may be um, a similar degree of negativity from these different media outlets somehow in relation to COVID, um, did you guys attempt or, or is there really any way to control uh, on such a large scale um, like where that negativity was coming from or was that um, kind of beyond the scope of your work? I think this is a great question and it was definitely something challenging, I think, to uh, kind of address. Um, Maybe to get into the weeds a little bit, but I think it may be kind of interesting is basically what we're doing is we're creating LexisNexis searches um, about like COVID-19 and vaccines in the United States among like different sources. And then we're downloading the articles in bulk. And then we're running uh, a couple different methodologies to measure negativity. And so first of all, even when we reach that stage, there definitely could be, uh, like Molly was saying, 
different kind of like sub like categories about vaccines and different like perspectives about like people can be negative and have different perspectives, if that makes sense. So it's kind of hard to capture it in that kind of sample we generate. And then in terms of our actual like the methods we use, uh, the one of them we use would probably be, I guess, uh, less prone to capturing like the political differences. And that's basically a dictionary where we're counting up negative words and we're standardizing this kind of measure uh, as a kind of a proportion of like the article's length. The other version uh, that we use is a little bit more sophisticated in terms of a machine learning approach where we uh, classified um, a set of training documents about being negative that we say is like objectively or very like sorry, not objectively, but it's very like transparently, like very negative, strongly negative or very strongly kind of positive articles. So that approach should, um, theoretically speaking, uh, make sure to only capture the kind of negativity we are wanting it to. But uh, again, it's not perfect. And I think yet when you actually go in and you look at some of these articles that they say are negative, uh, while we might get the same coefficient when we put in like a dummy for like CNN and Fox, when you go and you actually read like a CNN and the Fox article, what they're being negative about can be quite different. Uh, I have another methodological question now that we're kind of in this wonky uh, space of, of discussion. Um, it's a fun space. Uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think our uh, listeners will appreciate it. Um, so he here's one quote. Um, the most striking fact is that 91% of the U.S. stories are classified as negative, whereas 54% of the non-U.S. stories are classified as negative, close quote. Um, so I think this raises the obvious question of how do you control for the potentially confounding variable of different outcomes in these other English-speaking countries? Is it possible that these other countries were performing better and so had more positive news to report and that the U.S. at whatever time uh, this was going on was actually doing worse in terms of cases, deaths, um, etc. Um, is is there some way to control for that? Or, well, the way to look at it is you were saying the number you were quoting was fifty percent for like the British and ninety percent in the U.S. Is that correct? The number you were saying? Yeah, ninety-four percent and ninety-one. Yeah. So the way to think about it is that that gap is so huge that um, any sort of kind of like. Uh, premium you want to do if you even want to let's let, let's let's assume for a second that the United States was doing worse than a lot of other places which I'm not necessarily sure if I would agree with but if we run with that assumption that's still like a 50 to 95 percent is a huge gap that like could far outpace any sort of like premium there so I think that kind of like one of the points that uh to make here is that there are a lot of different factors you could think about of like why the United States is more negative than other places, but this gap is so huge that no one of them kind of explains it. Um, one thing I want to add there too is that a potential way to control for you know the issue that you're mentioning is to sort of focus on issues that transcend national borders. So a big motivation for us here was vaccine development. And in some sense, vaccine development was not a U.S. problem. It was a problem, you know, something that they were talking about in the U.K. and Germany and, you know, nearly everywhere. Um, and so from that perspective, if vaccine development was roughly at the same point across the, you know, in, in you know, at Oxford as it was, you know, at Pfizer, <laughs> um, we shouldn't see such a large gap. I'm not sure if that makes if that makes sense as I'm articulating it, but I think no, no, that makes perfect sense. And I'd I'd add to that um, that perhaps 
it, it gets even more complicated because even in my question, I'm assuming that the non-U.S. English coverage is just focusing on what's going on in those countries and at the same time that the U.S. major media coverage is just focusing on what's going on in the U.S. when I'm sure that both U.S. and non-U.S. English media coverage is about the world, what's going on in the U.S. as this um, major country on the world stage. Similarly in the U.S., you know, I saw a lot of news on CNN and Fox News and whatever um, commenting on Italy, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so that I'm sure that that would be incredibly hard uh, to control for. Well, right. And to that point, um, Professor Sasserote actually starts the paper by talking about how the U- like media um, in the UK reported on the vaccine coming out of Oxford as early as February of 2020, and it didn't show up in US media until far later. So I think that goes right to your point of, in some sense, they were reporting on very similar things, at least when it came to vaccine development. So another, I'm still, I'm still in the, in the wonky uh, mindset. So I have kind of a, a large quote, but I think it's, it's important for the following question. Uh, you guys reference a study uh, from Oster 2020 that collected data on school reopenings and COVID-19 infections within schools and districts. Um, and that she found that infection rates among students remained low at 0.14% and students did not become the super spreaders that many feared. Um, however, 90% of school reopening articles from the US mainstream media are negative versus, uh, and this is the word that um, is used in the paper, only 56% for the English language major media outlets uh, in other countries, um, end quote. So obviously 90% is significantly worse than 56%, particularly when the super spreader fear was all but um, statistically obliterated with the 0.14% figure. Um, but, but given this really low figure, uh, I, I, I mean, I guess that we can also say that while the US um, major media bias of 90% is, you know, statistically significant, statistically significantly worse than 56%, um, the 56% from the uh, non-US major media outlets is also pretty uh, astounding given given it's, it's a preponderance of negativity to what seems to be a pretty positive development. So could you guys just uh, explain to our listeners um, whether, whether the U.S. is relatively or absolutely more negative than major media outlets in other countries, or if this negativity bias is something that's exhibited uh, in absolute terms um, between countries? Well, in absolute terms... You could, I think both are true, right? Like if you have such a high uh, negative number and you also have the high negative number that is above the negative number of the international places, that means that in absolute terms, yes, the United States negativity is very high. And also in like relative terms, it's higher than other uh, outlets as well. Um, I think other places as well. I think that, yes, that's there's something interesting to be said about, I guess, like even putting aside like the United States versus um, other countries in the sense, something to be said about how the media has kind of, I guess, overplayed kind of concerns about these different safety precautions, if that makes sense. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, there's definitely been kind of like a mass hysteria in some ways. And I think that uh, yes, that 0.14 is uh, really a lot different. The other thing I wanted to mention there, though, is that uh, once you start to compare the media 
uh, findings to scientific journals, I think it gets a little bit blurry because um, I think by their nature, uh, the way you would explain something in a scientific journal is a little bit different than you would in the media one. So like our, uh, when we look at like vaccine developments and how the scientific media was treating it versus the popular media, uh, it gets a little bit harder to compare the numbers directly because like I said, just it could be a, a form of medium as well. Um, and just to your like original question about ab- do we interpret these numbers in absolute or in relative terms? I think one thing that we've we are very aware of is the fact that you know COVID is obviously a terrible thing that happened, and of course you know most reporting on it is going to be negative. It was devastating. It is like still devastating. Um, so I think there's a way to look at those numbers and to see. Well, yes, like, of course, this was the news, especially on COVID is going to be super negative. A lot of people have had that response to our work, and it makes sense. But on the other hand, if you think about, well, the scientific media and the popular media and the less popular, but still, still, you know, not scientific media are all reporting on more or less the same thing. That's when you can start to look at those numbers and make a relative conclusion about it. And so I think, to me, that's sort of the strongest thrust of the paper is that the U.S. major media are really an outlier. And so what does it mean if the most well-read sources are an outlier in their negativity? What does that mean for public opinion? Yeah, I think that that was one of the most important takeaways I got from reading through um, the paper as well. And um, again, Molly, with these segues, it's just perfect. Um, <laughs> you made reference to you know the super popular major media outlets in the U.S. Um, compared to the uh, less popular um, but still non-scientific outlets in the U.S., and, and your paper breaks this down very explicitly, and uh, I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out on uh, the National Bureau for Economic Research's um, website. Um, but uh, basically, one of your findings was that uh, COVID-19 stories published by the top 15 U.S. media outlets, so these are the major media outlets uh, that you classify in, in the piece, are 25 percentage point, points more likely to be negative in content than more general U.S. sources, um, and that U.S. general so, uh, media outlets are significantly less negative than all other categories of sources. And I was wondering, why do you think why do you think this is? And also, could you explain in more qualitative terms, um, or perhaps provide an example of a U.S. general media outlet to kind of explain this delineation? Uh, and, and difference in negativity bias between them and major uh, U.S. media outlets? So the way that we create our uh, data, I think it really gets down to that. When we're doing these searches in LexisNexis to collect articles, when we get the major media, it's derived from like an index of like uh, what are the most popular U.S. sources, um, and we specify when we're doing the search that we only want to look within those sources. When we want to find like the general sources, what we're doing really is we aren't kind of specifying or stratifying by sources. So it really could, you could, for example, have CNN in both, for example, but you could basically have like a whole bunch of different stuff in the general category. I think part of why uh, you see kind of the divide between the major and the general is in part because of like local versus national. Um, I think that one of the things we were talking about uh, fairly recently is that in uh, local new coverage, for example, there may very much be like less things to be negative about, right? Like they're just like the nature of like what's going on in like a local setting may not lend itself as easily to uh, writing negative things about as there is, would be when you have like a 
national uh, media source that can kind of pool and uh, select from like a much bigger uh, geography to find negative stuff. And Molly, your your thoughts on the matter, if you'd like to add anything? Yeah, I mean, Rajan basically just covered our methodology really nicely. But I do think that's an interesting point that we haven't spoken so much about, at least within this research team, is, you know, if you have a national perspective, like, you know, say the New York Times or the Washington Post does, you can pull out where across the country the story's really bad. But if you're only reporting on Hanover, New Hampshire, like, it's either good or bad, and you can't really cho- you can't choose, you know? So I think that's really interesting. Like, if these, that's not something we've talked so much about, but if these national outlets have an opportunity more so than smaller, you know, news sources to pull out the most negative stories, I think that that's, you know, potentially a confounding effect. Yeah, that makes sense. Just um, statistically speaking, like they have a much larger sample size from which to select the uh, the things that are bleeding and therefore leading, you know, to borrow that, that probably overused and trite expression. Um, I have one final question before I just like to open up the floor to whatever takeaways or, or discussion topics um, you two would like to expound upon. Um, and it's as follows. Um, so for that, va- uh, and, and here's a quote from your piece again. Uh, for vaccine articles, all media categories are meaningfully below the overall sample mean for negativity, except for the U.S. major media, which produces articles on COVID-19 vaccines that are 0.35 standard deviations higher on negativity, uh, close quote. Uh, so given the seemingly om- omnipresent emphasis on getting vaccinated and the popular movement to post vaccination cards on social media, and um, if I can... Uh, add a little bit of my own conjecture to perhaps at times either personally or publicly shame people who express um, concerns, fears, or apprehension about being vaccinated. Um, What do you think explains the major media's negative coverage of vaccine development, given that it seems that all the major media outlets and popular, at least U.S. sentiment, is really very much pro um, getting vaccinated? That was a very... um, not confusing, but surprising uh, quote from your piece to me. And I was wondering if you guys uh, could endeavor to explain that. Well, I think you could kind of connect this back to one of our earlier points or one of the earlier things I was saying about uh, kind of like the politicalization we're talking about, like how Trump coverage may have been kind of affecting the how Trump may have been affecting like media's slants of stuff. I think that uh in a lot of 2020, there was kind of the view about how the vaccine development was kind of tied towards like the Trump administration and how they were handling the the outbreak. So I think that to some extent, um, maybe the media could have been uh, more negative about kind of vaccines as a way to kind of go after Trump in a way. I, but I think really at the end of the day, a lot of what we've seen through COVID is, of course, a lot of obviously tragedies and death. But obviously there's also an aspect of like American innovation and kind of this enterprising uh, movement to kind of, uh, you know, develop vaccines and such. And so I think that that's kind of interesting to note as well. Yeah, I hadn't thought so much about that paradox that you just highlighted, but that is very interesting. I think it's also, again, important like to talk about the sample size that we were looking at here. And if articles from July 31st of 2020 are our most recent, um, you know, sample from from that data set, um, 
we hadn't we really didn't know much about what was going to happen and also a lot of the coverage on vaccines really seemed to be playing this like date game like how is it going to be within this calendar year or is it going to be within two is it like how many and then even if you got someone to say that it's going to be within this calendar year then the shift would always be to like well the distribution is going to be a nightmare which is obviously something that we saw earlier before it became clear that wait we're kind of it seems to be on we're gonna have a pretty nice track to getting you know a certain level of immunity by the summer at least so I don't think I have a great answer to why that paradox exists. I think it's an important one to look at, except to just, you know, remind, I guess, the listeners again that this sample size is somewhat limited now from the perspective that we're in spring of 2021. Um, and to think about, like, what the vaccine discourse was like last summer. That's where we're drawing the sample from. Well, I think it's also important to note that after that, we updated from July 31st to December 30th of 2020. And when you do that, it was kind of interesting because uh, I think this was the graph CNN used as well, is you do see negativity kind of drop right around like vaccine announcements. But then it kind of picks up, I believe, after that as well, which kind of builds brings kind of like an interesting question. Like when you think about like efficient markets, for example, you'd expect uh, any kind of information to kind of be baked in to like prices, for example. So like the equivalent of that here is perhaps like an efficient kind of. Uh, negativity uh, level, if you will, we kind of have like the future kind of baked in as well, which is not something we saw, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting um, comment, Ranjan, uh, and thanks for uh, attempting to clarify that. Um, yeah, now I'd just like to open up uh, the floor to you guys. Is there something I missed? Is there something you guys would like to elaborate um, further on? Um, yeah, anything at all. It's up to you both. I guess kind of the lesson I take from this personally is the importance of like critically kind of analyzing information that's told to you in the media. I think that obviously we lived in a very kind of polarized time uh, where there are a lot of different um, opinions, a lot of kind of talk about like fake news and such. And so I think that at any time when we're getting kind of new information and hearing things from media sources, I think it's important to be kind of uh, thinking critically, thinking about like, well, what kind of biases biases might this source have? What kind of objectives might they have, uh, et cetera. So I think that that's kind of like part of what we always like to learn in school. And I think that this kind of shows that that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting seeing how this was received. I think some people really like this work, some people really dislike it, but people like it and dislike it for very different reasons. And it was pretty cool, like I said at the beginning, to see this come out in the New York Times, when the New York Times is also one of the most negative sources, according to our research. And to just, there was some, um, I don't know, just something interesting in that, you know, how people have kind of come around and seen this research in many different ways. Um, and to think like, maybe we've had journalists say to us, you know, over the course of the time that we've been talking about this paper, like this really made me think about what I'm reporting and how I'm choosing to report things. And that's been very cool since, you know, I personally did not come into this work as a sort of, oh, let's get the journalists. <laughs> you know, I'm not, not a journalism major by any means, but that's been a really, you know, interesting part of this work is to also see how people within the profession that in some sense were holding a mirror up to, um, how they've taken this work as well. Though, that that's actually, it's funny because the other day the New York Times was talking about how teen uh, hospitalizations as a percent 
of like COVID hospitalizations were going up. And what people were pointing out is that, well, that's actually a good thing if the proportion that is uh, like teens or kids is going up because it means that the proportion that's elderly and most kind of uh, we kind of like uh, susceptible to the virus that those numbers are going down. And it was kind of funny because uh, when people were making those comments, they were also kind of linking to the other New York Times piece about kind of the paper. So it's kind of interesting that um, people are kind of pausing, but maybe uh, resuming back on schedule as they were before. It'll be kind of interesting to see. Well, thank you both for joining me.